Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. So my name is Michael Vashon, and I'm moderating uh, this panel, which is the third Bright Ideas session of our Names Not Numbers New York program. And we're fortunate to be joined by two originators of very bright ideas, Anna Pinedo on my right and William Cohen on, on my left. Um, Anna is a partner in Morrison and Forrester's New York office. She's a practicing securities lawyer who's consistently ranked as one of the best in her field. She works closely with financial institutions to create and structure innovative financing techniques. And she also advises clients on regulatory issues and on hedging techniques. And she speaks and writes regularly on securities laws and, and other topics. Um, William was an investment banker for 17 years and then decided that he wanted to make some money, so he became a journalist. And uh, he is the author of several books, you know, most recently the New York Times bestseller, Money, Power, Money and Power, How Goldman Sachs Came to Rule the World. He's a contributing editor at Vanity Fair and writes a weekly opinion column for Bloomberg Views. And uh, he appears regularly on a variety of news and, and commentary programs. We're going to hear first from Anna, who, who will address the proposition, is, uh, is creative finance destructive? And then from William, who, who will tell us what is known about individual responsibility in the upper echelons of finance? And then we'll open it up for a, a lively discussion. So, Anna, if you sure. want So, first of all, very happy to be here and to have an opportunity to talk about something that's not uh, where I don't have to refer to a particular section of Dodd-Frank uh, or, or answer somebody's questions about how many deadlines uh, our regulators have missed in terms of rulemaking, but actually um, spend a little time discussing a, a much broader and, for me, more interesting topic, which is um, how views seem to have shifted on the merits of financial engineering and financial innovation generally. And as a person who spends a lot of time uh, working with bankers as well as with issuers trying to structure financial products that are designed to accomplish particular goals, be they uh, regulatory or tax or accounting driven, um, clearly I'm, I'm someone who believes in the value of financial innovation and actually have been quite concerned um, over the last couple of years reading reports, media um, stories about the dangers of financial engineering and uh, about how financial engineering or overly engineered products were one of the root causes of the financial crisis. I think the tide is starting to turn a little bit. I don't know if it was Obama's State of the Union um, urging everyone to focus, to refocus on innovation in the United States, or simply that perhaps, and I say it perhaps because I don't think it's a certainty yet, uh, it could be the fact that we're over the worst of it in terms of the financial crisis and starting to think about more constructive um, more constructive things and about the world post-Dodd-Frank. So we 
seem to have gone from a, a world that embraced um, financial engineering and that embraced complex products to, in the darkest days of the financial crisis, kind of taking a step backwards and almost uh, going back to the Warren Buffett view uh, that derivatives and, and other overly engineered products were um, financial weapons of mass destruction. In truth, when you go to uh, the financial crisis uh, inquiry commission's report and you assess um, what the inquiry report comments on as the root causes of uh, the financial crisis, or you go to the more recent uh, Levin report on the financial crisis. In fact, you'll see that financial products uh, and financial engineering actually get very little airtime, and most of the attention is devoted to other aspects, which I'm going to cover a little bit, other aspects of uh, our financial markets that were uh, more problematic than uh, any engineered product or any financial innovation. Bernanke, in a number of speeches, has said that innovation isn't always a good thing, um, but he's been careful to note that it isn't necessarily financial innovation, but rather regulatory arbitrage and whether the individuals that were participating in some of the markets, um, either the markets, the ABS, um, MBS markets, or the CDS markets, were themselves highly regulated entities or less regulated entities, entities that might um, be thought to be part of the shadow banking system that really should be the cause for concern. By and large, I think that most uh, articles that I've read in the last couple of years have focused on a couple of particular, you know, highlighted a few products um, over others as being potentially evil or overly engineered and sort of of questionable merit. And the products that we all seem to read most about, I apologize if it's echoing, um, the, apologize, the, the products we seem to read most about um, are various off-balance sheet products like SIVs, uh, structured investment vehicles that were off-balance sheet, uh, CDOs that were comprised of a collection of mortgage-backed securities or mortgage-backed and asset-backed securities, and CDOs squared, uh, derivatives, broadly speaking, um, but most particularly CDS, and, in fact, a, a small segment of the CDS market, naked CDS. Um, and finally, other securities that I would think of as not particularly engineered, um, so some of the bank hybrid securities, trust preferreds, and um, other Tier 1 capital products. And so if you look at each of those markets, the market for securitized products, or the derivatives market, or even the market for Tier 1 capital products, what you'll see actually in Dodd-Frank is that Dodd-Frank goes well beyond addressing just the narrow, uh, narrow segment of product or narrow segment of the market that uh, could 
rationally be thought of as problematic, but actually goes well beyond that and incorporates, particularly in the OTC, okay, in the OTC derivatives world, um, really far extends beyond the products that were thought harmful. Um, so it's really my contention that most of financial engineering is uh, relatively modest and innovation. It's taking existing products and sort of addressing or tailoring particular aspects of those existing products to meet investor demand or to um, accomplish or gain uh, access to a market um, or provide very useful services, for example, um, in the securitization world or in the CDS world to provide access to what is otherwise an illiquid market. We went from um, having a housing finance market that was um, where we had only a very small participation by the capital markets who had banks, uh, neighborhood banks or community banks making loans, which obviously meant that from a U.S. public policy perspective, our housing finance market was a very small one, to ultimately having the disintermediation of having um, the capital markets and a much larger um, participation of the capital markets make capital available for mortgage lending. And now, of course, largely uh, because a lot of these securities are uh, no longer no longer have investor confidence, having practically no market in the United States for a securitized product, and the United States left really in in a quandary as to the future of housing finance and how we're going to actually um, accomplish our public policy objectives of encouraging home ownership, while at the same time permitting some degree of financial innovation. You could say very much the same thing uh, for the credit markets and for CDS, where we went, uh, where originally CDS, again, served a very useful purpose um, of encouraging banks to continue to make loans and to hedge uh, their loan exposures through credit derivatives and opening up what is, by definition, a pretty illiquid market, the loan market, and making it more liquid. So in substance, my view is that we've, uh, the pendulum has swung too far in uh, the other direction, and we need to sort of engage in a more thoughtful uh, and, and uh, more precise discussion, trying to isolate uh, financial products and whether a lot of uh, what a lot of the problems that we saw were in fact, uh, arising from regulatory arbitrage or from uh, putting in place certain um, incentives. For example, uh, in Basel II, uh, banks were incentivized to use CDOs or other securitized products for risk capital purposes. Um, but Basel II became a static thing, and uh, regulation didn't keep up with innovation. And the fact that regulation didn't keep up with innovation um, could be said to be a pretty common theme across all of the markets that I talked about. The securitization market, uh, the derivatives market, the market for auction rate securities, the market for hybrid securities. 
um, a number of, of uh, academics in the United States, including um, Henry Hugh, who for a time was um, with the SEC's new Office of Innovation, um, have suggested this notion of an innovation tax, um, commenting that, in fact, financial innovation and financial engineering um, impose a social cost, that it's expensive for regulators to keep up with every new product that Wall Street comes up with. And I think that's an interesting concept. Um, and the whole notion of how um, we populate uh, many of our government agencies with um, individuals who are attuned to and have um, their finger on the pulse of Wall Street in order to be able to keep pace with financial innovation. To me, that's an interesting concept and probably um, an interesting challenge in the years to come. Okay, thank you. That's great, Anna. I won't uh, comment at this point on what she just said. We can save that for later if anybody's interested. Uh, but rather, uh, I'm supposed to talk about what we know about individual responsibility in the upper echelons of finance. Well, that's pretty easy and pretty short because that's pretty much the null set. There's, uh, unfortunately, uh, at the moment, uh, we went from a situation when uh, Wall Street was a series of small private partnerships when everybody had their own personal capital invested in these companies, as well as their entire net worth on the line every day. We went from a system where that was the case, which was the definition of Wall Street, until 1970 when DLJ, uh, not far from where we're standing today, sitting today, uh, was headquartered, uh, uh, started uh, the, the chain reaction of firms going public, and the whole dynamic on Wall Street was changed from a partnership culture to a bonus culture where people were uh, rewarded uh, instead of for their prudence and their judgment when it came to taking risks because they had their full net worth on the line to a situation where uh, they were rewarded for taking risks with other people's money, what I call asynchronous risks with other people's money. So they get rewarded for taking big risks, and apparently there is absolutely no accountability if they take risks and they lose money, as we just found out in this crisis, because uh, they were all bailed out and, except for Lehman Brothers, not, not allowed to fail. So uh, when you uh, uh, do that, unfortunately, uh, you, uh, you do a lot of good things, I, I guess I would have to say, for Wall Street firms. You allow them to uh, uh, obtain a lot more capital with which they can uh, you know, provide a lot of the services and products that they provide. Uh, but unfortunately, and, and you, of course, make their partners very wealthy uh, so that they, their incentive structure changes. Uh, and they, they say that the reason that one of the reasons they had to do this is because they had to be able to compete. So with DLJ going public, then Merrill Lynch went public, and that line of logic included uh, Bear Stearns in 1985 and, and Morgan Stanley and then up, up to Goldman Sachs in, in uh, May of 1999, and even my old firm, uh, Lazard, which you know would never have been a, a public company if Michel David Vey had his way, uh, went public under Bruce Wasserstein in May of 2000. So you have the entire ethic on Wall Street changing in a generation. 
And if you don't think there is a correlation between these firms going public and the lack of accountability that resulted and the number of financial crises that we've had, I think you are missing a very important fact of life. And I've uh, tried to make this point repeatedly, and not only in my columns and my articles and, and my books, but I, I think when I speak about it, I, I make the same point. So uh, that's my basic thesis. And the question is, you know, what do we do about that? You know, this is an ideas conference, so uh, I feel like it's sort of my responsibility to come up with uh, a few ideas uh, about how to change this culture, which rewards risk-taking without any accountability, rewards people for using other people's money to get big bonuses, and then, as a result, uh, has no accountability when things go wrong. Now, I know this because for 17 years I, I worked in this culture and I, I know it very well and I, I was a beneficiary of it, but that does not make it uh, right. I was an M&A guy. I never risked a penny of any of my, the firms I worked at's capital, so uh, I can at least uh, sleep well at night thinking that. So what has to change on Wall Street? Well, the first thing is that the casino, the Wall Street casino must be closed, number one. Wall Street used to be, once upon a time, a place where people came for valuable services, valuable services, raising capital anywhere in the world, which allowed companies to expand patent and equipment, hire new workers, get into new markets. Uh, so underwriting debt and equity securities, a very valuable service that Wall Street provided. And frankly, except for the very moment when they, you know, uh, bought the securities from the seller and sold them to investors, you know, there was very little principal risk involved. Providing M&A advice on deals, uh, providing advice on investments. I mean, these are the valuable resources that uh, services that, Goldman, uh, that, that firms on Wall Street provided for generations. This was the business of Wall Street until they started going public and, and we got into the kinds of securities and financial innovation that Anna was talking about, which I have to say I think uh, start out in typical Wall Street fashion to be very, very brilliant ideas. I mean, there's no question that uh, securitization that Lou Ranieri developed at Solomon Brothers or high-yield securities that Mike Milken developed at Drexel Burnham were incredibly valuable innovations. But in typical Wall Street fashion, uh, there's no carburetor on people's behavior because there, there's no accountability uh, and people are rewarded for taking risks, as I said. So things get out of control and each bubble gets created because nobody is willing to stop. The, the, you know, unlike what Chuck Prince said, is, is it, you know, ex exactly like, in fact, what Chuck Prince said, which is that you know, he's going to keep dancing as long as the music is playing, which is you know, no carburetor on people's behaviors until the bubbles get inflated and then they burst on their own, which is why we've had so many crises. So first thing is the casino must be closed. Uh, there needs to be some uh, reinstatement of some form of Glass-Steagall, which was a, you know, a 35-page bill that became a law in 1934-35 that basically kept Wall Street contained for the next 65 years until, you know, de facto it was gone and then, uh, uh, you know, all, all hell uh, broke loose. And so we need to go back to a, a simpler time when Wall Street provided services to their clients and were not betting for their own account. Number two, pay on Wall Street has to be cut in half at a minimum. People get paid way too much on Wall Street. It's obscene. There's no other way to, to think about it. 
And, I, and I, I'm telling you this as someone who benefited from it. You know, I used to be a journalist, and then I went to Wall Street. I could make more in one year as an associate at Lazard than I could have in an entire career as a journalist. That is not right. That can, can, and that's, you know, forgetting the social value, I mean, or how we want to uh, reward people for certain careers and, and which we deem to be socially valuable. Uh, I, you know, uh, what other profession on the face of the earth pays out between 50 and 60 cents of every dollar of revenue to their employees in the form of compensation? The answer is none. Wall Street is the only place. And, of course, law firms, I'm talking about public companies, it's the only one, and it's obscene. Who do these firms exist for? The shareholders and the creditors, who they should exist for, or the employees, who unfortunately they do exist for? That needs to change. And by the way, when they say on Wall Street, oh, no, we can't do that because people will leave in droves, we'll lose our best people, we won't be able to compete, blah, 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 all of that is a load of bunk. You could easily cut the pay in half, 50%. Nobody would go anywhere. Why? Because they know that they can't get paid nearly, even if it's 50% of what they get paid, for anything like in any other profession that they work in. People on Wall Street are basically risk-averse. Where else can you go to get paid as much as they do and not take any personal risk whatsoever? If you're taking a lot of risk with your money, if you're Steve Jobs, God bless you, you can make as much money as you can possibly stuff in your pockets and more. But people on Wall Street don't take any personal risk. They don't take any capital risk. They have no risk whatsoever, except maybe they have a chance they'll get fired. But, you know, that's what happens to everybody on Wall Street. But think of the money that they make. They get paid way more than the risks that they're taking. That's number two. And finally, number three, the bonus culture on Wall Street must be revamped. It doesn't work. It gets us into trouble. The idea that people can get rewarded for taking risks with other people's money without any accountability is a disastrous way to go. So how do you recreate that partnership culture that used to exist when people were rewarded for taking prudent risks and they knew that they could lose their entire net worth if things went bad? Well, obviously, you can't make Goldman Sachs a partnership again. It's a $90 billion company. There isn't enough leverage in Jimmy Lee's vaults to take Goldman Sachs private again, or any other big company. So what do you do? So I have this idea that I've been pushing for the last year or so, which is that you, and, and maybe Anna can, as a smart securities lawyer, can figure out how to do this, is you, you create a new security that represents the net worth of the top 100 people at each of these firms, the people who decide where to invest capital, who to hire and fire, who to pay. You know, the top 100 guys. We all know who they are, and they're unfortunately mostly guys, but hopefully there are some women too. You take these, the, the net worths of the top 100 people in these firms, and you create a security that represents these net worths of these people, and you put this new security at the bottom of the capital structure, below the debt, below the equity, so the first thing that gets lost in a crisis or when things start going bad is their money. Not only what they have in their bank accounts, not only what they have, you know, in their brokerage accounts, but up into including their entire net worths. By the way, just like they used to when they were private partnerships. That way you wouldn't have had people like Jimmy Kane, who worked right over there, you know, playing golf, playing bridge, and smoking pot when he should have been in charge of his company. Thank you. Okay, thank you. So 
Now, I think we, we, we don't have a, a lot of time, but I wanted to open it up to comments from, from, from you. I, I think the big question that we've gotten to here is the question of who's served by, by high finance or by financial innovation. You know, is it, on the one hand, society that benefits because capital is allocated more efficiently and because money is available for the kinds of productive activities that benefit us all? Or is it really a smaller club of a few thousand people who operate the financial system who benefit? Uh, I think, you know, I think, William, you would, you would fall in, in that camp. And I think you're sort of on the fence. I think you don't, you, 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 you said that you think that, that financial innovation, in fact, does have something to offer society by providing liquidity um, and by, uh, 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 by, by making some of society's policy goals, like home ownership, more within reach. Um, so that's, I, that's the, sort of the way I would phrase the question. And I, I don't know if anybody has. Uh, Derek Watt, is what happened... Uh, on Wall Street, did it also happen in, in the bourse in Hong Kong, in stock exchange in London? So has, has the same pattern been repeated around the world? In my humble opinion, uh, you know, Wall, Wall Street um, exported. All, all, Wall Street was the nerve center of the crisis and then exported the cancer around the world uh, as a result of uh, packaging up these mortgages that, you know, people shouldn't have gotten in the first place, that they obviously, mistakes were made there, and people shouldn't have borrowed the money that they said they were going to borrow if they didn't think they were going to pay it back. But those, that crap, that, that, those crappy mortgages were packaged up through financial innovation, thanks to Lou Ranieri 20 years later, uh, packaged up into mortgage-backed securities, CDOs, CDO squares, all of that stuff, and derivatives, and CDS and everything, you know, all of that risk was transported and, and, and exported around the world. And so uh, when it all came crashing down, everybody got affected. I think, I think Wall Street now refers to the global financial industry rather than just the street downtown and not it, just America. Well, yes, it, the one exception being that, that it was, you know, still the, the, the brain center, the nerve center of, of Wall Street writ large is still this square mile that we're in right now. I mean, that's where, you know, the brain power and the innovation is. So I, I, would, I would say that um, a lot of the more aggressive product innovations were actually originated in London. Um, CIVs, CDO squared, all born and bred in London, um, not Wall Street innovations. And in many respects, I think that London... Um, was, or the, the bankers in London were largely more aggressive uh, in terms of some of the innovations in the MBS and ABS market and also in the derivatives market. Um, and I think that as far as the derivatives market goes, London has always been actually um, more cutting edge in terms of, and, and some clients with um, not appreciate my saying so, but London has always been um, a little bit ahead of the curve. Would you care to speculate on the impact over the last so many years on the American economy 
on the aggressive selling of M&A packages to corporate America? I think that the uh, academic research into success of M&A deals is pretty clear that most of them don't work out. Uh, they're about ego. They're about uh, corporate CEO egos. Uh, they're about uh, trying to mask weaknesses in the business of the uh, of the acquirer uh, company, uh, and and sellers have weaknesses in their businesses. So uh, often they don't make a lot of strategic sense. Sometimes they do, uh, uh, but it's very much ego driven, which is why when in periods like we've just come out of, when the economy is not good and people are worried and nervous about their stock price and about their business. They're not feeling emboldened to do deals. Uh, no, I, I, you know, what I've never understood, never understood, is why uh, these corporations pay so much money to Wall Street for M&A advice. M&A advice is good. It's, you know, I don't understand why M&A bankers don't get paid like lawyers. I mean, they get paid by the hour for their advice, just like lawyers get paid by. Why do they have to make millions of dollars and fees for putting together deals. But as a result, you know, it's incredibly high margin business. It's like 80, 90% margin business. It's pure profit. Uh, and so there's a big business that's grown up around it. But just to put it in perspective, not nearly as big as, as trading, uh, you know, debt and equity trading has become on Wall Street. In the back there. Marin Candel. <clears throat> I hesitate to take issue with Bill Cohen who's one of the most brilliant writers on Wall Street today. But, Bill, you know very well that that idea of 100 top people putting their net worth into that pool won't work. How about the idea of putting half their compensation into deferred, into a deferred pool? And every fine or penalty that the firm has to pay, ten times that amount goes out of the pool. And if the firm ever suffers a loss, an equal amount goes out of the pool. So that, remain, that retains the idea of public ownership and yet puts the risk back in the game. Sadly, something like what you've proposed is soon going to be law um, in both the EU and in the United States. So if you consider the proposals that have been put forward for regulated institutions, it's that a third uh, of compensation be deferred, and of that third, that some be clawed back in the event of, of certain bad acts, if you will, or financial statement uh, restatements, or fraudulent acts, or other um, excessive risk taking. So that functionally will be a reality. Um, we've also seen that quite a number of investment banks have put aside pools of highly illiquid securities. I think Credit Suisse was among the first to do that about four years ago, three and a half years ago, where they put um, so-called toxic assets into a pool. And as part of the compensation to um, directors and managing directors above certain levels, they received stock in the toxic assets. And, of course, you know, everyone um, was very apprehensive at first, and the toxic assets have bounced back and are worth enormous amounts. 
And so it's a windfall. And now that it's a windfall, um, that notion is being questioned yet again. Um, because even though you know it was considered fine at the time for, in that case, half their compensation to be paid in these illiquid units of a phantom pool of securities, it's now too rich. Mike, I appreciate the kind words. Uh, I'm not giving up on my idea yet because uh, I haven't had a smart uh, securities lawyer tell me why yet why it won't work. Uh, here's the here's the problem. And I, rather than what Anna said, I wouldn't say sadly. She said sadly this is in there. I would say, you know, fine, that's a good place to start. A third isn't enough. Here's, here's the thing. You know, uh, uh, when, I, when I, you know, interviewed Jimmy Kane about what happened to Bear Stearns, I mean, he, he, you know, there's a guy who you would say, oh, my God, he lost a billion dollars in Bear Stearns' stock. How could he have possibly have been playing golf and bridge and smoking pot when he should have been... But, you know, understanding what goes on at Bear Stearns. The problem is, you know, his net worth at that time was, so he says, let's give him the benefit of the doubt, a billion four. So a billion was tied up in Bear Stearns' stock. The 400 million he'd already squirreled out of the company and put in his Swiss bank accounts or wherever he had it, in a, in a condo, a triple-sized condo at the plaza. He didn't care. He told me, the only person who got hurt, I said, Jimmy, what's it like to lose a billion dollars? What is it like? What must that feel like? He didn't care. He didn't care because he still had 400 million tucked away. He said, the only people who lost were my heirs. He has a, you know, a daughter who he speaks to and another daughter that he doesn't. So, so you know, all he cared about you know, was that maybe they would lose. But he, he had 400 million squared away. If he had a billion four on the line instead of just a billion, he wouldn't have been playing golf. He wouldn't have been playing bridge. He wouldn't have been smoking pot. That's the genesis of my idea. Uh, this is probably a very um, naive question, but in the way that you've seen some consumer values change quite radically, the rise of the citizen advocacy movement and uh, everything from Naomi Klein onwards, are you ever going to see guilt or a reevaluation, a fundamental shift in the way the people that have access to these enormous riches? value things? Are, you ever going, are they ever going to self-regulate? Is that just ridiculous? I think, I mean, I would venture an answer to say no. And I, I don't think you can rely on individual virtue. And so I think anybody, most people in this room, given the opportunity to make a billion dollars, would do it. I think it's the responsibility of society and, you know, the legislature to regulate the way in which those those riches are earned, and to say what's permissible, what's not permissible, and at what cost. Well, I think our value system now, and at least in Western, in Western societies, in, in the United States right now, we, we judge success and worth and value by money. So I think, that, I think it's baked in the cake that people are not going to walk away from the opportunity to access those riches. I, think, I don't think there will be self-regulation. I think it's a, I, don't, I don't think one should rely on that. Well, there was self-regulation, you know, during the Depression. You know, we revere, you know, the way people were so resilient and hardworking and had, you know, honorable values during the Depression. They just made enough money to scrape by, and everybody was in the same boat. So if something like that happens again, I assure you, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 
we won't be, you know, TMZ will be out of business. All, all you know, the, the, the Kardashians we won't hear from anymore. The Hiltons will be gone. All that will be gone. All those things that we revere, uh, supposedly revere, will be, you know, if we go through something like that again, which to me is entirely still possible, uh, then we'll have a total, what we need is a total reset on values and what we esteem in, the, in this country. But absent a crisis, we're not going to. Julia, I'm going to get you a book called The Sociopath Next Door, but that is not related to my question. It seems to me that we are on the precipice of another questionable IPO bubble, what with Facebook's valuation and so forth. And my question to you is we're literally standing at the edge looking at this. And, William, do you have any ideas on what could be done either legislatively or uh, regulatory-wise to stem what could be the fallout from something like this? It's just, ama- it's just amazing to me that we're doing this again. I mean, fortunately, it's, at least it's, it's you know, narrowed down to social networking uh, uh, companies. Uh, I, I'm, just, I'm just stunned. And it's by the same people who did it last time. It wasn't that long ago. I don't think it's something you can legislate. I mean, we're going to have to go through the cycle again and let them lose their money. Well, Anna, is it, let me just, is, do you, is there some sort of regulatory framework given our existing laws that could, that, that could, well, I, I think there probably are some things you could do to. to. Um, I think, you know, that unfortunately we don't have as many IPOs as we should, and for smaller and emerging companies, um, they don't have the access to capital. And for companies in this particular, the the LinkedIn's of the world and Facebook and whatnot, there is a lot of hype, and those stocks do get overvalued. You know, technically, um, under the securities laws, there isn't anything, there isn't a current framework um, for assessing or or regulating valuations, as it were. But there is always the liability that accompanies um, a stock drop case. Um, If you have a three-times subscribed IPO, four-times subscribed IPO, and then you don't see the performance in the aftermarket, um, securities litigation almost inevitably follows. And that does tend to dampen um, the the exuberant valuations to some extent. Aside from that, I don't think that there's any other, there, there isn't a regulation um, that currently um, deals with valuation, and I don't know that it would be appropriate um, for the Securities and Exchange Commission um, or any other regulator to, to comment on valuation. Um, I think we're seeing something that I think is really concerning in the UK right now, which is this notion that the FSA Um, is going to intervene in product structuring. It's called the Product Intervention um, Regulation, and it's a proposed FSA paper on which they uh, commented just earlier this week. And it substitutes the regulator's judgment about particular products, um, which, you know, is not necessarily where those decisions should lie. So I don't... There isn't a current mechanism for for commenting on valuations. Um, Common sense, maybe. Common sense. I wanted to ask, I mean, given the obvious need for financial reform and regulation, um, what do we do when there is 
seems to be so little political will for that. Um, I was at a party the other night where, with some Wall Street people who were talking about how horrible Obama was and that they would never support him again um, sort of thing. And as we know, our local senator here, uh, Chuck Schumer, is, is heavily supported by um, Wall Street folks. So how, in, in terms of some of the things that you were proposing, how do we get from here to there when there is, seems to be so little political will for it? There's a 2,300-page Dodd-Frank law. Uh, there seems to be some political will for that piece of crap. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I don't know what they were all thinking when they wrote that. Yes, there are some good things in it. Uh, you know, as I said before, the Glass-Steagall Act was 35 pages long and, and managed to a very simple idea. Investment banking has to be separated from commercial banking. And that, I think, provided us a pretty... Uh, a significant measure of protection for 65 years. Uh, I think, you know, uh, having people uh, have ultimate skin in the game up until including their entire net worth, the people who make these decisions at the top of these firms, once again, having that uh, uh, skin in the game would be uh, very medicinal. Uh, you know, if you look at Goldman Sachs, unlike every other firm on Wall Street, uh, the top 400 partners of Goldman Sachs, they're called partner MDs, they get paid out of the pre-tax income of the firm, not revenues. That's the only group of people on Wall Street who gets paid that way. I'm talking about in banks, okay? So the fact that they get paid that way means that they care about pre-tax income, not the revenues that they generated, which is why Goldman was able to see trouble coming in the mortgage market and make a huge proprietary bet against it, unlike every other firm on Wall Street. So to me, it's very simple. You don't need the 2,300 pages in Dodd-Frank. You just need people to be held accountable for their actions. And then, if you, with just the regulation that exists, you can make sure that people continue to do the right thing once it's in their incentive to do the right thing. Thank you very much.